zoom, 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 say, wow, come, eh. Ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to set the You're session. listening to Respect You. Open it up, say, good evening and good afternoon. Like say, wow, come in, welcome in, For this project, we've invited UK creatives, journalists and heritage organisations to nominate an individual who's had a big impact on their creative journeys. The individuals nominated for Respect You are people who have inspired and innovated in their field, people who have demanded change and paved the way for generations to come. Their achievements will be showcased in the Museum of Colour along with portraits by the artists Grace Lee, Erin Say and Naki Na. In this audio series, you will hear from the nominees themselves. The Museum of Colour is a digital museum celebrating 250 years of creative achievement by people of colour. In this episode, we will hear from the incomparable Lucy Sheen. Lucy is an actor in film, TV and theatre. She is also a writer and activist, campaigning for better representation of British East and Southeast Asian people in creative industries. Lucy was born in Hong Kong, but was brought to the UK as part of the first official programme of transracial adoption. She continues to advocate for adoptee rights today. I came over to the UK from Hong Kong in the late 50s, early 60s. The UK was a very different place to what it is now in terms of its ethnic makeup. So I was very much the only Chinese person in my local vicinity, which was just outside of Windsor. So very conservative, very white. I had a, a normal child as as it could be. There were just added extras in terms of the fact that I was a transracial adoptee, so I didn't look anything like um, my immediate family or indeed anybody else around me. So um, I survived school, various iterations of it. And then in a moment of, uh, I suppose, weakness, maybe, I ended up auditioning for drama school. I went to uh, Rose Bruford, which was the only drama school that I could actually get a grant for. I suppose naively thought, oh, I'll be playing all the big roles, do a bit of Coward, Oscar Wilde, etc., Revengers tragedies. And I was told by more than one tutor, oh, well, what you can look forward to is a life of playing maids, prostitutes, uh, opium den uh, madams and and mail order brides. And it was like, but I'm at drama school. You know, I was cast in one sort of year, Fan Shen, Caucasian Chalk Circle and a maid. And it's like, hang on a minute, isn't drama school where you are allowed to kind of like crash and burn, fail? get your teeth around, you know, sort of all of those those amazing uh, playwrights. But apparently not. That was, you know, sort of 70s, 80s. But that kind of shocked me. And I realised then that it might not be that easy. You know, so I got into drama school. But then what's the real world going to be like in terms of the roles that I was cast in? Lucy's first role, however, was something quite special. Straight out of drama school, she landed a role in the now-cult classic film, Ping Pong. 
Ping Pong was a first in that it was a storyline which actually looked at the concerns of the British Chinese community. And it looked at the British Chinese community as a community like any others. So there were sort of, a, it was a large cast. So first, second, third generation people who still had uh, linguistic characteristics from there, from Hong Kong or wherever they come from, and people like me and, and the male lead who was kind of like Oxbridge educated. So it was the first time, I think, that Chinese people had been seen like any other group of British people and it was unusual we weren't just behind a, a counter in a Chinese takeaway or in a restaurant they were people who were had jobs who were entrepreneurs who were who were different this first experience in film would shape the course of Lucy's career I mean I was very lucky because I did things the wrong way round. I mean at the time when I went to drama school if you were a serious actor you did theater not film or television uh, definitely not adverts that kind of really wasn't the done thing. So what do I go and do as I land a role in a film and had I been the only British East Asian in a film which was from a, a, a white perspective about a different topic, I suspect my career path would have taken a very different course. In the early days, because there were so many theatres still around, uh, repertory theatres, etc., I was very lucky. My first theatre job was at the Royal Exchange. And yes, I, I was a jobbing actress. I was really lucky. And then things shifted kind of in the early 90s. And I went through a really, uh, well, uh, more than a dry spell. It was another 15 years before I set foot on a stage, which was 2010 uh, at the Orange Tree. How did you deal with the drought? Because you had a fantastic start Mm. and then things just dried up. The office didn't come in. What? Uh, How did you deal with that? In in, in terms of the theatre literally it was like somebody had switched a light off and I wasn't quite sure why and my day job side hustle turned into the only thing that was giving me a wage and then because I wasn't getting that much telework either and it was yes I'll take more shifts I'll take more responsibility etc etc come 2010 I just thought I can't I can't be dealing with this. I can't at my age. So I'm going to find a job based on the skill set that I have for sort of corporate, you know, sort of PAYE, and I will find something that I can live with. That means that we don't have to worry about paying the bills, etc. And on the evening that I'd decided that that was going to be it, a friend of mine said, oh, I've just put you up for a, a play that's happening at the Orange Tree. And I just thought, well, you know, no skin off my nose, no harm, no foul. I won't get it. I went for for the audition and I got the job. Uh, <laughs> and that kind of started a resurgence in that I ended up playing opposite Benedict Wong. It was a lovely play. And I just thought, well, I'll give it one last shot. And if it doesn't work out, then I can truly say I tried I then got cast in another play for a small independent theatre company 
I then got seen by Thayer Sherrock for the retrospective of the David Hare plays up at Sheffield Crucible, and it just kind of like... And boom, there you were. And then I started writing, and that, funnily enough, took off. Got commissioned uh, to do a short play at the Royal Court uh, with a couple of other British East Asian writers, and it just kept happening. And it's weird. (laughs) As well as building a successful career as an actor and writer, Lucy has consistently spoken out against stereotypes in film, TV and theatre. I suppose I was a quiet advocate until 2013, yes, 2013, uh, when the RSC announced their cast for their production of The Orphan of Zhao, often referred to as the Chinese Hamlet. And out of a cast of 17, there were only three British East Asian or Southeast Asian actors, none of which were playing protagonistic roles. Now, there are no small roles, only small actors. But the sad thing is, and it's something that myself and my colleagues and friends uh, talked about, if they had cast a British East Asian as the orphan, we would probably have all gone, yes, amazing. And that would have been it. But they, they cast a maid important but she gets her head decapitated one young lad was playing the doctor's ghost son an amazing scene but also one half of a devil dog and it's like hang on a minute why couldn't they have cast the british east asian actress as the princess the daughter why couldn't they cast one of the the british east asians as as tao gan the general and that caused up a huge stink and there was one point at which myself and um, a couple of other actors, it was just like, even if we wanted to, and, and it's, you know, sort of in, in my youth, I'd, I always yearned to, to be at the RSC. We'll never work at the RSC, ever. We, we, we've burnt those bridges because you don't, as an unknown actor in that sense, also from a... a, a a minority within the minorities in the the way that we are actually represented and seen in in British culture. You don't stick your head above the parapet and and accuse the RSC of not doing what they should do because they're a publicly funded organisation, which they should. And it kind of um, went global, which was like, wow, social media can be amazing. But I think that for one or two of us, there were sleepless nights in have we gone one over what we should have done and it is scary and I think it was the fact that you know if we can't even be involved in the retelling of our own culture our own heritage then what on earth can we be involved in this is fascinating but I want to ask if this has informed your writing and your decision to write because over the last decade you've written a play about your own experience a documentary about transracial adoption how did you how did you decide what what was the catalyst for you writing about your own story I guess part of it was I was also tired of seeing representations particularly in Hollywood films of uh, adoptees and uh, adoption is uh, you end up being a psychopath or, or or you're broken you have to be mended invariably by the white parents that adopt you and and you have to be grateful for that 
and I just thought that's not the case that you know like any other group in in any society we as adoptees or transracial adoptees we cover all of the gamut of emotions and experiences I think there tends to be particularly in East Asian adoptees so Korean uh, Vietnamese Chinese there is a higher I think incidence of that adoption not playing out how adverts uh, advertise it as the forever family happily ever after which is always going to be difficult if you don't actually understand where your child is coming from even if they are not old enough to actually recall their former life that is still part of them and I think particularly with transracial adoptees the challenges and, and, and possible problems you grow into them because you realize as you grow older what you have lost, what has been in essence removed from you without your knowledge. So the life markers of leaving home or having your first serious relationship or getting married, having a child, put into stark relief the fact that if you're a transracial adoptee, as in my case, my life doesn't start. There is no start although there is before I get to the orphanage in Hong Kong everything prior to that any connection has been erased so you are rootless that kind of like racial and cultural DNA that everybody else has is 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 missing one or two links the things that make you both unique and part of a community and a wider a sense you don't have those and I think you are if one is being honest in a sense always chasing those hoping that you're going to find some of those missing links I was going to ask does it continue does it stay there even if it's in the background is it is it there I think it is yes my opinion is as a transracial adoptee you either get to the point where you embrace the fact that you are neither one thing nor the other. You are not particularly welcomed by the the nation that you were brought into. And very often you are shunned by uh, the culture of your birth because you are a strange hybrid of what you look like and what you sound like, which two things don't marry. And it took me a long time to actually come to terms with that. But once you do, I think you... You, you're happy with that. Well, I'm happy with that because I'm I'm now secure in what I'm not to many people, and that is their problem, not mine anymore. Can I ask you a quick question about language? Mm. Yes. I remember when I went to South Africa and I was doing some work there, and it became really clear that I looked like I could absolutely be South African in mm. terms face and so forth and so of course people started to talk to me in the myriad of languages that exist in South Africa and they would say oh you know what's your home language and I would say English and they would sort of look at me like no I'm really sorry I've only got English you know and it was it was the strangest feeling and I was Mm. just wondering because of the the way that you your early part of your life started how the language 
has has worked for you? Do you speak any type of Chinese? I, different I, I've tried and I've tried. I think I have. Uh, I'm sure psychologists would have a, a, a field day with me. I get to a certain point and I can't get any further. And the first time I went to Hong Kong was a very peculiar experience. I guess it was the first time that I realised how much of the time in the UK I spent going around with my head down, not actually looking at people, whereas when I got to Hong Kong, I was like everybody else. And it was the, the white tourists that stood out like a sore thumb. And Yes, and as long as I didn't open my mouth, yeah. I was f- fine. I don't know whether you felt that when you went to South Africa, it was such a, a weird sensation to be physically in the majority. It was just like, wow, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, it really was. And I mean, I'd been to African countries. I'd been to Ghana. I'd been, I actually had been to South Africa before, but a different part. Mm-hmm. This time I was in Joburg. And it, it was a very strange sensation to yeah. be part the majority and it was really difficult to describe but interestingly from west africa i still don't necessarily look like i belong there but in mm. south africa i absolutely did yeah. i fit in like everybody else until like you said i opened my mouth <laughs> um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just bring you back into the industry now mm. and over the last three decades how do you think the industry's changed? You've talked a little bit about it, but do you see more nuance in the type of stories being told and the kind of roles being offered to British East Asian women? Um, no, to British East Asian women or, or men. Men are still emasculated or they're these sort of evildoers or, or, or caricatures. Women are still, particularly younger women, still hypersexualized, fetishized, or there to be rescued by uh, a white knight in, in shining armor, as it were. So that hasn't that hasn't really changed, and that stems from I think the way that people of color are perceived, and it, it, it's ingrained. And I think there's a very peculiar attitude that this country has when it comes to East and Southeast Asians which means that we very rarely go beyond those kind of like tropes and stereotypes. So I don't see much give. There are the odd things that happen. But, you know, sort of you look at the States, and the States is obviously not perfect either, but you look at the States in terms of recent work, Minori, The Farewell, you see a group of Asian Americans, they just happen to be Asian and American. You know, there's, there's nothing, they're normal, as it were. And I hate ha- you having to use that, but there is an, a normalcy to what they do. And it is a story about a family. It could be any family. Minari is the American dream, isn't it? But that's still being perceived as a, a foreign film, but it, it's the ultimate American dream. And it just happens to have Asian characters in it. What do you think needs to change? I, I mean, I'm just, I remember the, remember the Chinese detective. And what's horrific oh, is that I have to think that far back to pull up a Chinese lead. But like you say, because East and Southeast Asians are the minority within the minority, even though others are sort of pushing forward, and there's a bit of a break. and But somehow... It seems that there's been even less movement for for East Asian and Southeast yeah. Asian. So what do you think needs to change in the industry? 
I think there are there are two things. I mean, firstly, we've had a plethora of production companies saying how much they appreciate and realise that diversity is a real problem. It needs to change. Well, that's easy to put your name to an open letter or to sign a petition or whatever. As many organisations found out during the re resurfacing, uh, shall we say, of Black Lives Matter, and they were caught out and pulled up and quite rightly so and I think it's not rocket science in order to achieve uh, equality inclusion I hate saying diversity because it's another one of those tick boxes to actually better reflect British society in our drama for all of its wealth and its diversity and its richness you need to fund people you need to not invent more schemes for writers of a particular background. You need to start hiring them. You need to start putting them into positions in front and behind camera that are significant. You need, in a risk-averse industry, I agree, to actually put your money where your mouth is and start taking on people that aren't the same people, that, that are people that perhaps are not agented that have talent, that need to have the door open a bit wider for them and somebody to stick their foot in it so other people can come through. Similarly, uh, on the reverse side of that with British East and Southeast Asians, we need to start speaking up more. We need not to be afraid. I think we, you know, it's that thing, you tell a community they are something for long enough and you end up believing it. We're not a model minority. We are not, you know, sort of acquiescent and silent. You know, the history of China itself is full of revolution and, and discourse, you know, and, and people ranting and, and raving and dis- trying to do something about that. So absolutely, that is not part of our, our history if, if you come from that particular part of the Asian continent. We need to be more forthright. If we don't tell people that, certain behaviour is not acceptable, they're going to continue to do it. Similarly, which is I think is also an important thing, uh, as a a community, and I use that quite loosely because unlike other ethnic minorities, I think we are not as unified as we should be. And that I think that is, you know, a consequence of divide and rule. And if you find a small corner that allows some entry into the wider more accepted world then you're going to hang on to it like funding you're going to hang on to that I think we have to take a long hard look at ourselves and just because we are of from a minority does not mean that we are not capable of being prejudiced or racist ourselves the level of anti-blackness which was displayed last summer shocked me I mean I knew that it was there you can say it's a cultural thing fine but we have to do something about that and I was quite vocal about that and got quite some quite hard pushback you know race traitor and all the rest of that nonsense Um, we can't ask other people from who have suffered uh, or undergo similar challenges because of their heritage or the colour of their skin if we are not willing to call out the very thing that we want people to stop doing to us we have to be very clear about that So we have to start getting our own house in order. But I think that is coming together in a way that I haven't seen 
for a long while, people understanding that as a, a section of British society, people of heritage, people of colour, whatever we wish to call ourselves, we are much stronger together. Our voice is much more potent. And that doesn't mean that we lose our individuality or uniqueness. We, we absolutely hold on to that and to our heritage, but we join forces with other people who share many, many commonalities in, in terms of the challenges that we face on a daily basis, which other people don't, you know, and, and unless we make people understand what that means, living through that kind of pressure, fear, you know, things are never going to change. Okay. I'm going to quote you on that because that's so beautiful. <laughs> So to, to any actor who's listening to this now thinking, oh, last legs, time to go into academia or something, um, what would you say to an actor who's considering giving up? This is such a, a weird industry to be in. I think it's true that the moment that I stop actually enjoying it, because that's part of the joy of doing what we do, is that we actually get paid to have fun and to enjoy it that we're doing by and large. There are always those moments where you think, mm. um, but that's life, isn't it? I think if if you're not enjoying it, then perhaps it is time to put your skills in, in into another, use those those lives. I mean, the amazing thing about being in this industry is the skills that we have are not just required for the entertainment business. I would say that they are an absolute requisite for any industry sector if you don't have imagination if you don't have curiosity or creativity then you don't get the Einsteins or the Stephen Hawkins of this world you need that and it's not just about the three R's obviously they're important but what you have as an actor or as a creative are those life communication skills of being able to understand people of of being able to have empathy of being able to see literally outside of the box, unfold it, turn it upside down and rethink problems or solutions to things. So, you know, doing drama is not just about having fun. It's about being able to communicate. And that's what we need more of these days as human beings, actually being able to communicate. Could it be we've come right to the end? So soon. The end. The end. The end. The end, y'all. But yeah, we're shutting it down. We're shutting it down. Lucy Sheen was nominated by Be Seen. Be Seen is a grassroots movement created to shine a light on Britain's East and Southeast Asians. We're shutting it down. Respect You is presented by me, Sam Amar Session, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. You can find out more at www.museumofcolour.org.uk. The music you have heard in this series is from Soweto Kinch's prize-winning album, Conversations with the Unseen. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms. Respect You is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the Paul Hamlin Foundation. Thank you for listening. Make you think you're in a cave and your shadow can speak. Ooh.